Well, hi, and welcome to Mad Beef, Australian rollerblading podcast. And today we've got another interview, this time with Ian Smith, who was a member of the Roaches, 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 <laughs> however, we'll talk about that in a second, um, Roaches International um, Skate Team, uh, and experienced something of the rise of inline and aggressive inline in and around Sydney. And it's uh, we'll he- hear a lot more of Ian, hopefully, because as this podcast got up and running, he got in touch with me and said, oh, this is so good you're doing this. We need more of this in Australia. Um, Ian's been key in trying to encourage and work with others in his area of Australia, keeping uh, inline community stuff happening. And so it's really awesome to have you hopefully involved in the long term, Ian, with the Mad Beef podcast, man. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I, I really do think it's a good thing and um, be great if uh, we could you know, encourage more involvement just on any level uh, with this sort of stuff. And that's what we uh, seem to be doing here. Well, I hope so, yeah, and it, hopefully it just comes whatever it is, a conversation starter or a, a way that, you know, it, someone else sees it, comments on it, gets in, I mean, for me, you know, you get inspired, don't you? Those who, who let the let being involved with the sport drop, you know, you get inspired to pick it back up and yeah. that kind of thing. Or exactly. someone who saw, saw a cool video somewhere, it's not until someone at their local park starts skating that they get inspired enough to give it a go and so on so of course mm. look we there's so many and i'm in this generation where everybody rollerbladed at one point um and uh, everybody at sort of you know between our uh, generational age gap uh has or has known someone who's rollerbladed and it really wouldn't take that much to just get out there and, and make it seem a little bit more familiar i know i see rollerbladers occasionally uh rolling around canberra and it's it's really nice for me to to <coughs> be able to see that um, not necessarily at the skate park so much, but, you know, recreationally, and they don't necessarily have rec skates on because, uh, you know, they may have pulled them out of the garage or something like that. And, um, yeah, just trying to encourage that and, um, yeah, getting out there and being seen. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kick off with that. We were chatting about it before we began the podcast episode proper. Um, I've heard Americans say roses or roses. I used to always pronounce it roaches. You were telling me that the person, the distributor, person you were in touch with, who had to do with the Italians, pronounced it how? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the the lady I dealt with uh, in Australia always pronounced it roches, and. Um, <laughs> I, I, I never indulged in replying with that exact statement because I, I figured that uh, the way that the, the word was spelled in Australian, you would say roses. Um, but, yeah, uh, they had the cockroach logo, so figured that um, because of the, the Italian accent, it would be more like roaches. But, um, yeah, there's, there's always a bit of uh, controversy on exactly how to pronounce it. You're quite well-spoken, so give us your best... Um uh, Aussie Ocker version of how you'd pronounce it in Aussie for the sake of any of our international listeners. Say roses. Roses, mate. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, um, and like in Australian as well, we have a shop called Target and people jokingly call this budget department store um, Target. Yeah. And so I guess it's the same thing. If you wanted to talk about roses in a slightly posh way, then roches. Oh, roches could be the thing. <laughs> Sounds about um, right. Yeah, cool. All right. So, um, I just wanted to let you give us a little bit of your story going from being a kid who at some point got inspired to have a go at inline skating, um, but then ended up traveling the world and mingling with people who within a short window of time were heroes for you. Suddenly you're meeting them and just hanging out with them as normal people. Um, I, we'll just do it for a little while and stop at some point along the line. And uh, I think you said there's hours worth of stuff 
Yeah, um, sure. Look, up, so. you could pretty much go on about it for a long time. It was a, a huge chunk of my life. And, yeah. um, I was only involved at the, the top level for sort of five or six years, but, um, you know, that, that also includes a lot of, uh, building up and, and then tapering off for a long time, uh, until rollerblading really sort of hit that, that big down period where there wasn't too much around. Um, yeah. but for me, uh, really started, uh, around about, uh, 1991, uh, one of my friends, uh, had a pair of rollerblades. His name was Jared, and um, he was like, "You got to try these things out." He knew that my father was uh, into ice skating and uh, roller skating, so I was no stranger to having wheels under my feet or you know that gliding feeling. So I'm like, "Yeah, I'll give it a go." And um, we went down to you know this local square of tarmac, and uh, you know I borrowed his skates because we were around about the same size and got around quite easily for thought that you know here's something that's that's like roller skating except you can actually skate on the street because roller skating you know like it was yeah yeah like skateboards on a hard sort of rocky surface it was terrible but it's amazing isn't it it's like gliding yeah it's amazing and also with ice skating because of the kind of slight rockering of ice skating Mm -hmm. it's quite a jiggly wobbly sort of feeling isn't it you know um yeah. In by comparison, it's a weird thing when you put on rollerblades for the first time. You go, "This is all those things I love," but somehow with an ease to it that's pretty unique, eh? Yeah, it was all very familiar. Starting off, I um, I didn't have the you know the first time jitters of not knowing exactly how to do it. Um, it yeah. was a little bit different, you know. You still get the the falling back thing. You have to lean forward into it. Uh, rollerblades traditionally always had a, a heel lift. And, yes. um, yeah, some of them were quite significant. Uh, like these days you can get the zero, so you're totally flat. But back then it wasn't uncommon to have 14 mil, which is a quite a, a significant lift. Um, but yeah, seven was pretty standard as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, also rockering, uh, you mentioned on ice skating, uh, rockering was a common thing as well. There was quite a few skates that you would just buy out of the shop and they didn't have a way to adjust it. They were just all rockered, which basically just means your middle wheels are lower by a couple of millimetres than your outside wheels. And so turning, you could literally turn on a dime, you just spin in, the, in place if you so desired. Um, and it, it's a huge difference to, to riding flat and then uh, absolute polar opposite to, um, to freestyle or ante. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, uh, we got down there and he saw how easily I picked it up and he was like, yeah, there's this place that I've been going down in Manly, which is not only what we were feeling at the time, but, um, <laughs> a, a location on the Northern beaches of Sydney. And there was a vert ramp there, a big metal thing. And, um, he said, yeah, you should come down and, and try it on this. I've been mucking around. And, so this actually was on the beach, is that right? Like right on the actual beach of Manly, was it? No, not on the beach front. No. Um, okay. uh, in later story, there's there was a portable ramp that uh, Bill from Manly Blades had. And okay, that must have been what I've seen. Demos on the beach front, yeah. yeah but that was okay. a portable. Uh, this one is in Curl Park, which was, you know, sort of a kilometre, half, half-ish mile off the, um, off the actual beach front. And... Um, so went down there the next week and uh, I found myself on a, a 12-foot vert ramp and um, managed to get myself you know, two-thirds of the way to the top. Uh, terrible thinking back on my style, but you know I had no idea what I was doing. No one else was around. There was a couple of skateboarders. But um, 
yeah, I've, I've found it, it quite easy to get up and down. And, um, yeah, the, the next time I went there, tried a, a little bit harder and got very close to the top, actually ended up uh, bruising or fracturing. It's difficult to say because I never bothered going to the doctor because who does that? My uh, <laughs> coccyx. Um, so that was a good excuse to have two weeks off. And, um, yeah, it, uh, from there just really progressed, but, uh, vert ramp was it at the time. Um, and that was quite common, hey, in a lot of places in Australia, the, the, the vert ramps were built and were quite present, but skate parks much less so. And even the ones that were, were maybe just like a, like no, no engineers really knew what they were doing. And no. so you had these it horrible was, it was someone concrete with a bobcat that was just, you know, built a ditch and then covered it in concrete. That was, and so kind of, that was yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they had sort yep. of curved edges. Um, and that was most of the skate parks in Sydney. I knew there were at least a dozen skate parks in Sydney and very few of them, uh, were anything other than what we used to just call a snake pit. So just mm. a, a wavy bit of concrete and, um, even at the time, we you know we would go down there on our BMX bikes and you know do jumps out and try three sixties and all that sort of stuff. But um, but they didn't even work as long. I remember that the ditch behind the um, Paran ramp in Melbourne it, it didn't really even have the transition such that you could get much of a launch out of them. Even often, it's just yeah. No, they were mm. just ditches. Um, <laughs> you know, people tried, but as much as they could, there was obviously not a lot of thought put into um, many of them. Uh, mm. There were some good ones, uh, but yeah, it was a different era, and you know they were built for probably more for skateboarding and BMX because uh, mm. inline was fairly unheard of at the time, um, and not always for the faint-hearted. Um, there wasn't a lot of that were beginner sort of style. So vert was the thing. Yes, vert was it. Um, there was a, a tiny was little mini ramp next to it, but yeah, it was nothing to speak of. Was there a point for you when you kind of noticed in yourself uh, – like I'm watching my 11-year-old kid in the last year. He's gone from loving playing soccer, but it's still a kiddie thing, to suddenly going, hang on a second, I'm really good at this. And it's a switch in his mind from just loving and trying hard to actually – like he's switched across and he's he's turned 12 this year. He's been invited to go into state with the futsal blah, blah, blah. And he's suddenly gone, hang on a second, I'm a contender. Do you know what I mean? Was there a point for you? Can you even remember a moment when you went, hang on a second, I'm not just having a go, but actually I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty good at this. Um, you know, I could be a contender with this. Was there any moment like that for you? Well, um, I really think it was in those first few weeks. Um, I, I really found that because I, you know, I'd already had sort of a, a kickstart into it with uh, being familiar with ice skating and, um, and quad skating, and, you know, knowing my way around a roller rink uh, and we went to this one that was in Bankstown that had banked edges, funny enough, so you could sort of roll up the side and then roll back down. So all of that was already, like, familiar to me. And um, so putting on rollerblades was just like a, a light switch and going, you know, this is it. This is what I'm here to do. And, um, yeah, it just became so easy and so natural um, and yeah, after a couple of weeks finally seeing another rollerblader, Shannon Johnston, uh, on the the Manly vert ramp. And um, I remember, you know, I'd only been there a few times. I wasn't quite up to stalling or anything and just watching someone drop into a vert ramp and then roll up the other side and roll along the, the coping and then 
go down the other side and then stall, you know, turn 180 and turn back and then do airs, go above the coping. This was just amazing. And I knew I wanted that. Mm. So what next? Where do we go from here? So uh, from there, I um, just spending a bit more time uh, with uh, my friend Jared. We started looking around for other places to skate and found Bondi because uh, Bondi had this amazing mini ramp. Uh, it is an absolute tragedy that the Bondi mini ramp no longer exists. Uh, I understand that, you know, sitting on a beach, it's not a great place for a timber structure. But, um, yeah, this thing was the best. And, uh, of course, it had the, the, I think it was 11-ish foot uh, timber vert ramp up there as well. So, and that's what um, people would have seen on um, the Aussie TV show Heartbreak High, right? That's where Drazik and oh, so on and so two? forth would go and skate? Um, yeah, they would have gone to that one. Uh, they also would have seen the, the Manly one and uh, okay. Bill's portable ramp that we were talking about. Um, I actually was an extra on Heartbreak High for about 12 months. It was an almost <laughs> full-time job. It was you know three or four days a week. Uh, we'd go out to, to Warrywood and um, to the set. And we would literally just skate in the background all day and occasionally we'd say something or they'd tell us to heckle or do something like that. And, um, yeah, I auditioned for a couple of parts, but me and acting, mm, not so much. Because um, what's his name? John, John Pollard. Pollard? Yep. Yeah, very charismatic. So character A is sort of worked, amazing, worked well as a little bit of an extra. Yeah. yeah. Look, um, still do you have any video footage of you in the background that we could maybe whack on the Facebook page with this um, – it might be difficult to find, but it should be there. I know there's um, there's a part, uh, a more a featured part that Scott Crawford got, um, and Let's have a where, hunt for it. where Drazik was uh, was doing a race. It was called the the Blade, I think it was, and uh, it was basically a, a track where he would skate or around the uh, the heartbreak high set and there's a couple of jump ramps here and there and and the vert ramp in the background and he would be jumping downstairs and you know over people and you know they'd hide a jump ramp behind the the bench and it would make it look like he was <laughs> jumping over it and he was getting about five feet in the air so some, some <laughs> superhuman jump um and it was a race and and he was to beat a time and he obviously you know in the story beats the time and uh, yeah. I fairly keenly remember that day, so it's quite possible I'll be in a, the background of a couple of those shots. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting doing uh, that sort of stuff because uh, you know it made things a little bit more legitimate at the time. We um, we had to go through and get uh, you know insurance, and we had to be part of uh, the union, and we needed uh, proper contracts, and we had agents. So we would often get uh, little bits and pieces in movies. Um, there's a shot in Babe, Pig in the City, where uh, there's a, a crowd scene where Magda Zabanski is, is walking through a crowd not knowing where she is. And, yeah, there's a couple of seconds where I sort of roll past her. And, um, yeah, a few little movies and TV spots like that. Yeah, okay. So those... Those things were opening up as opportunities. Obviously, skating, the more those happened, the more you skated, right? And the more seriously you took it? Yeah. Well, um, basically, from uh, skating at Bondi, I, uh, I met uh, Matt Solano. And um, him and I got along really well. And we would skate together quite often. There was a few other guys 
who were regulars on the ramp, and uh, some of them were much better than I. And uh, it was really good to to get on there, and, and that's always what I try and encourage people to do. If you want to improve, you find someone who is better than you, and you spend time with them. So um, yep. I, I went out of my way to try and um, and find people who were who were able to skate better than me because there was there was no rule books out here. Um, this is before um, uh, Airborne. Um, mm. I think uh, it was before Hoax. It was you know there was no instruction on how to do any of this. We were basically copying skateboard moves. And yep. um, we had on rollerblades that weren't necessarily designed to do this sort of stuff. You know, what were I, you skating at that well, stage? After a couple of weeks of borrowing my friend's skates, I, um, I begged my dad to get me some skates. And, of course, we went down to, to Paul's Warehouse, like a disc- discount sports <laughs> store, and we got these one-piece uh, rollerblades that were – I can't remember the name, but it was basically one solid uh, piece of plastic – uh, with a barely any material liner and um, some wheels uh. that were hanging on by a thread. And uh, they lasted me about a month because uh, the cuff just ripped off. Uh, it had no <laughs> chance. Um, so my birthday was coming up and uh, I had no clue what I was doing. So I went down to the skate shop and uh, there was several skate shops around in those days. And there was a nice one in Parramatta and I got uh, some Rose's LAX. So mm-hmm. they, were, they were nice silver with sort of a sparkle in them and lots of holes for air to let air get through. Um, they were a permanent rocker and uh, had your 72 mil wheels on. And uh, they were very comfortable and they ended up lasting me quite a while. But um, yep. on those skates, that was my, my Bondi days. And um, I learnt to uh, do lots of tricks in those. Um, I have quite a few old pictures of myself uh, learning backflips and inverts and, and stalls and lots of different airs. Uh, this was before grinding, so there's no grinding. Uh, yeah. There was no gap. It was There was not an option. Uh, but, yeah, that was sort of uh, probably 12 to yeah, 15 months uh, was using those at Bondi. It's, um, it's great just pausing on that. Like yep. there, there are things about that, and it's the same with skateboarding, hey, where there was a – before the kind of – the in the case of skateboarding, board flipping tricks as well as grinds, and then before grinding for rollerblading, uh, that more gymnastic element where rotations, um, carving, aerial manoeuvres, invert manoeuvres, a lot of those are similar to kind of 80s skateboarding stuff as well. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they're really – I mean, they, they look great. They really are timeless things, and it's um, – it's one of those things that it seems like it's sort of slowly kind of being rediscovered a little bit from watching more recent videos, but it's um, it's yeah. kind of nice in a way, learning to skate before those things. And so learning a lot about style, moving through the air um, and moving around on your wheels without just seeing those things as just a vehicle to get you to a ledge or a, or a rail. Yeah. No, I agree. And watching uh, public transport not long ago uh, – this yes. Australian yeah. video, watching that and seeing how many different uh, grabs people were doing and different air variations, like they all seem quite so simple. There was nothing amazing about any of them, but it's it just made the sport so much more interesting over like in, in such an easy way. And mm. um, 
yeah, it was it was great to watch it. You could watch someone do ten different walls on a vert ramp, and every single um, wall was different. It was great. Yeah, agreed. Um, let's um, uh, maybe bring this uh, this first sort of take on this sort of bit to a bit of a uh, kind of a pivotal point maybe by if we can probe a few things reflecting on the the sydney scene maybe a bit wider yep. um uh, you comment on any of these things you know but here are a couple of thoughts um what, what are there any unique things you reckon that were unique about the sydney scene as opposed to say the melbourne scene or the american scene that's one thought any key adults looking back who actually, you know, at the time you didn't really notice because you're a kid and you think it's all just you guys, but you look back and you go, hang on, actually those adults were really pivotal. Um, uh, and um, and was there um, was there a point where it went from random individuals learning these tricks to really the, the beginning of a sort of a, an awareness of a scene, a kind of an aggressive inline scene? You know, any thoughts on any of those sort of things? Yeah, this is kind of uh, at the stage that I'm at at that um, – 15 odd months of me, you know, on pretty much rec skates at Bondi. Um, we heard from one of our friends about these demonstrations that were happening on Manly Beach. And uh, so Matt Salerno and I uh, went to Manly on one of the days when this was supposed to happen. And we met with Bill Vitucci, who's the owner of Manly Blades. And, uh, you know, we were just sort of chatting to, to him and to the guys around and uh, we sat down and, and watched one of the demonstrations, and that's when, um, like, at the time, people were, were talking about the uh, the aerial assault squad in Melbourne. I didn't really know who they were or anything like that, but I'd heard of them. And uh, in Sydney, who I assumed were part of this, was uh, Callum Mulvey, uh, John Pollard, and Blake Reed, and they were, and Scott Crawford, of course, and they were well above any the level of where where I was, um, but only in terms of uh, their strength and their knowledge of the the sport at the time. And um, so, watching these demonstrations, uh, or watching one demonstration for us, uh, was really great. Being able to see it all happening in front of us, and then uh, during their break, uh, we asked if it was okay if we got up there. And, um, you know, because we had our own tricks. And um, so we jumped yep. up on their little vert ramp and, and did, you know, our little thing. You know, Matt was doing his really long-held inverts. Man, he knows how to do an invert. And, um, yeah, I was uh, doing my flips and had a couple of grinds by that stage. I'd upgraded to uh, uh, Rollerblade Tarmacs. And, um, yeah, after our little show, Bill quietly mentioned hey you know do you guys want to come and be part of the um the demonstration and we were more than happy yeah awesome um, yeah that sort of started uh my journey uh into sort of the more serious part of it and bill was really instrumental in it and you know this is a guy who's who's still around and um yeah still helping people and you know the sports have all changed for him um, he's, I'm sure, uh, focusing more on, um, on scooters, uh, and skateboarding than inline at the moment. But, um, yeah, he, he really changed the sport for us and, um, being involved in those, uh, demonstrations started my, uh, more professional version of rollerblading. 
Yeah, it's it's business people are important, aren't they, for music, for sports, you know, culture and all that kind of stuff. That like sometimes people can badmouth business as always being sellout and corporate and whatever, but the right person in the right industry with the right heart, they've got a motivation to help, but yeah. also they if they're able to get a shops running up and running, they've got an entrepreneurial mindset that can see potential and and join the dots in ways that that a bunch of kind of kid attitude don't know how don't know how to adult in a way to do that. So yeah, you're right. So it sounds like he was right guy in the right place who he helped open some, open some doors. He did. He did for a lot of us. Um, there was there was other key people. Um, I know Sessa had help from uh, Bondo Boards and Blades, uh, the crew there. And also, uh, I think it was Skateboard World in Burwood mm. uh, were instrumental in um, in him, you know, having the support because that's what it's all about. Once you, you get really into it and you get more serious and you, you know, we were, we weren't little kids. I was uh, like 16, 17. So we were heavier, you know, we were going through the gear. We were buying, you know, seconds because buying brand new wheels was too expensive to do, you know, once every two months. We, we didn't have incomes, we were at school, you know, and I'd trying to convince your parents to buy wheels every two months. Yeah, hey, Dad, can I have another 100 bucks? Like, <laughs> so um, having those people who are out there uh, willing to support you in some way and, you know, just so you'd wear a T-shirt and uh, support their brand, and it, it really helped us. And, um, yeah, yeah it, uh, and that sort of brought in the, uh, the 94 era of the building of inline in the sydney region which we'll come back to i reckon um just one more question like that was there anything at this stage that you noticed that was unique about sydney do you think do you think there's anything about that those formative years the sydney scene that even then looking back had unique things to it um look i think it was the the atmosphere and the energy that came from a few key individuals, and uh, and that was really Sessa and Matt Solano, and um, like I count myself in that group because they were my friends and I was with them all the time. But they're you know more well known than I, and um, and there were there were lots of other people, and um, you know everybody played their part. But but being down uh, at Bondi. You know, on um, on a Saturday in the afternoon, having television cameras walking around and like hundreds and hundreds of tourists all being down there, just made our sport look so spectacular. Cecil <laughs> doing you know six seven foot backflips, and he had this wonderful way of pretending that he was falling, and uh, you know pulling out of it at the last moment. Beautiful. And uh, yeah, he really did uh, represent our sport fantastically. Because uh, that's and, another thing, isn't it? that era, the late tricks, late airs, late flips, that kind of stuff was another one of those pre-grind things, wasn't it? Like having ways to sort of hold off the, the final re-entry or the final turn, exactly. that kind of thing. Um, no, yeah, it, very... it, was, it was the rocket late 360. Uh, yes. <laughs> the, the Jess Derenforth sort of rocket late 360. And I think Manuel had a good one. I know yeah. uh, Tom Fry was another one. Sorry, I'm embarrassed I haven't said his name yet because Tom was uh, just, you know, he was the best for such a long time. So solid, you know, had a, a style that only Tom has. And, and again, the personality as well that does something special, doesn't it? It kind of makes the 
makes the helps makes a makes a culture as well, doesn't it? Yeah. If you've got someone someone who's willing to cut their hair like a clown <laughs> or whatever. Oh, exactly. Kind of, he did yeah. the yeah mm. the the opposite um, crew cut. He shaved the top off and then have the outsides <laughs> long, which is ironically what we all look like now. But um, <laughs> yeah, and they're always smiling, always happy. Um, yep. And then developing those relationships with the sponsors, with uh, Cosmo as a brand, um, you know, developing it from the ground. Uh, and Tom was really there, and uh, so were a bunch of other peoples uh, that um, that made it great at the time. Everybody was so supportive. Awesome, man. We'll finish the story there and pick up some more of it in a later episode. Sound good? Sure, sounds good. Rollerblading podcast is produced by Mikey Lynch, theme music by Edifice Architect. You can find us on Facebook and SoundCloud or subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have any questions, comments, requests or podcast contributions, please message us on Facebook. To support the podcast, find us on Patreon and pledge a once-off or regular contribution. Even just two bucks a month, every little bit helps. See you later.